You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Revelation. Here's Nate. I think that built into the message of the gospel should be the explicit understanding, or the implicit understanding at least, that the church will never be perfect. I think this is one of the uh, problems uh, in the world. The church often loses its witness through sin, through hypocrisy, through double talk. Uh, However, throughout the course of history, uh, we of course understand that the church has been completely and fully far from perfect. Now that doesn't excuse anything on our parts. However, uh, we have to understand and know that deep portions of the body of Christ have been entrenched in sin. It, It reminds me of the parable that Jesus told. He said that the kingdom of heaven would be like a mustard seed which grew up to be a large plant uh, and the birds of the air came and nested in its branches. That speaks of unnatural rapid growth but it also speaks of something rather disheartening. Jesus had said to the disciples, if you don't understand the parable of the sower, How will you understand all of the parables? And so the parable of the sower is a beautiful key legend or roadmap for us in understanding the other parables of Christ. And in the parable of the sower, the birds of the air are definitely evil and from Satan himself. Satan who comes and devours the seed of God's word as it's scattered upon a human heart much like the birds of the air swoop down from the air and eat up the seed that has been scattered on the wayside. And so when Jesus says that the birds of the air will nest in the branches of this mustard seed plant and that the kingdom of heaven is like that, you understand that there will be evil and sin and apostate beings that are actually identified with and inside of the church. And that's exactly what we see in the church in Pergamos and the church in Thyatira and in Revelation chapter 2. We see two churches that had gone into deep levels of sin and rebellion. And Jesus now is going to correct them and deal with them. Now, just to remind you, of course, as we're studying the book of Revelation together, and I want to thank you so much for joining me. Revelation chapter 1 verse 19 is the outline of the book. Uh, Jesus said, John, write the things that you have seen. That's chapter one. The things which are, that's chapter two and three, because the churches in Asia Minor were in existence at the time of John. And write the things which will take place after this. And so chapter four through 22, the things that are yet future that came after the time of John. And so verse 12 today, We have the third letter from Jesus, the letter from Jesus to the church in Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, Pergamum or Pergamos was a powerful city. It was the capital of that region for more than 300 years. It was known for its culture. It was known for its high society. 
It's education. At that time, it had a 200,000 volume library. And so it gives you an idea of what kind of city the church there was dealing with. And it was a religious city as well. It had three temples dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperor. It had temples to the four great gods, Zeus, Dionysius, Athena, and Asclepios. And in being a religious city, sick people came from all over Asia to find healing, especially in Asclepios' temple. And uh, they had a school of medicine that was connected to that temple. And the, the priests at nighttime, it was said, would dream of the healing uh, for different people who would come with sicknesses. Or people would sleep in that temple. And in the temple were these snakes that were free to, you know, slither about. And in the night, if a snake would touch the person, it was said that they were then healed. And so because of all of that religion, the opportunities for deception were numerous. And so Jesus tells this church, this church that had been deceived, this church that had followed some bad teaching and some bad doctrine, specifically the doctrine of Balaam, he told this church of himself, he says, listen, this is he who's writing to you the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And of course, the two-edged sword of Christ refers to the reality of the word of God. That the word of God is living and powerful, Hebrews tells us, sharper than any double-edged sword. And so the sword, the word of God, Jesus has the word of God. And so Jesus here is speaking of division. He's going to divide them with the word. He's going to divide them from their false beliefs and bad beliefs that they'd attained there in Pergamos. And he, his word was going to separate them, in a sense, from their culture. And it's so fascinating to notice that the solution that Jesus had for their bad doctrine was the good doctrine of Jesus' word. It's one thing to cut out the bad. It's one thing to cut out the bad diet, but, it, but it's another thing entirely to add the healthy diet. And that's what Jesus was doing for the church in Pergamum. He would add the good and steady diet of his word to their diet. And so he says there, he who has the sharp two-edged sword. He says, verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I know where you're living. You're living right there where Satan's throne is. Now, this implies that Satan had power and had rule in that city. And I'm not exactly sure what this is a reference to. Perhaps it's a reference to the altar of Zeus that was present there. But Satan, of course, had an invisible throne as well. But visibly, you could see the results. That city was a difficult, dark place. And some of you are living in a difficult, dark city. You're living in a place where you would say, I think Satan's throne has moved here. I think it's been relocated, so to speak. Uh, but, but the Lord says, listen, I know that you're living in a hard place. I know that you're living in a dark place. This is not an easy place to be a believer. It's not an easy place to be a Christian. You know, this wasn't a Disneyland of Christianity. And Jesus saw that difficulty. 
And so he mentions that. He says, I know that you're living where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so Jesus mentions this martyr that we know little about, this man named Antipas. And he says, listen, you you guys have held fast to my name in the middle of such a dark place where he says again, where Satan dwells. And so again, some of us are ministering and serving and, and living in places where you've just sensed this stronghold of the enemy. You're talking to people about the Lord. You're trying to communicate the gospel. And it just seems more and more like they are so hard. And you feel like this has got to be a spiritual battle that I'm in. And it certainly is. And Jesus saw that. He commended them. He said, listen, you you held fast to my name. But he says, verse 14, he says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and to practice sexual immorality. So verse 14, he has this major thing against the church in Pergamum, and it was that they had held to the doctrine of Balaam. Now you get this story actually in the book of Numbers, sort of the pinnacle moment of it in Numbers chapter 25, but in some of the chapters preceding that, we discover this character named Balaam. Now there was another character named Balak, Balak was the king of the Moabites. And the the children of Israel, they were wandering through the wilderness and they had come to the nation of Moab and they were passing through and passing by. And Balak looked at these people and the fear of their God entered into his heart. And he, he felt that their presence indicated certain doom. And in one sense, he was absolutely right. And so there was this magician prophet character named Balaam. And so Balak, the king, sends to hire Balaam to come and curse the people of Israel. It's a fascinating story. Balaam at first refuses. Then finally he gets permission from God, it seems, and he goes. Uh, His donkey rebukes him for going to curse the people of Israel. He reports for duty to King Balak and he says, I'm only going to be able to say that which the God of heaven allows me to say. He says, that's fine, that's fine. So three times uh, he goes up to, uh, you know, either a mountaintop or an offering place, looks out upon the nation or the people of Israel and attempts to open his mouth to pronounce a curse, and instead, out of his mouth comes a blessing. After these three times, Balak, the king, says, Listen, I don't know what you're doing here, but I hired you to curse them. Get out of here. And he rebukes Balaam for that blessing that he pronounced upon the Israelites. And then after all of that is over, in Numbers 25, it says that, the women of Moab went down and caused the men of Israel to commit sexual immorality and sin. And uh, through that sin, God then judged them himself and began to slaughter them until a man named Phinehas stood up and, uh, 
you know, went into the tent of a man who was sinning and killed him right then and there. And with that zeal, God then relented uh, from his destruction that he was bringing upon the Israelites. It's a fascinating story. You don't really know exactly what happened until you read in Numbers 31 verse 16 that the people of Israel stumbled because of the counsel of Balaam. In other words, Balaam tried to curse them and couldn't, but then apparently went to King Balak and said, listen, I can't curse them, but here's a way that you can bring catastrophe upon them. Send your women into the camp, tempt them into sexual immorality, and you won't need to curse them because their God will do the job for you. And so the doctrine or the teaching of Balaam that was existing in the church in Pergamum, obviously Balaam was dead and gone, but his doctrine, his teaching remained. Notice that he says that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And so it seems very apparent that in the church in Pergamum, there was this desire for and toward sexual immorality in the church in Pergamum. And it's so sad when a church leans in this direction. When the people in the church, instead of viewing sex as a gift that God has created, that the marriage bed is undefiled and that it's for that relationship and that place, instead of having that attitude, they have a perverted attitude and they adopt all forms of sexual immorality, whether it's premarital or extramarital sexual activity, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's, uh, you know, masturbation and self-sex, all of that. Uh, these other forms that God has not prescribed. Uh, it's so sad when this creeps into and enters into the church because as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, it steals our freedom. It uh, corrupts us spiritually. And Paul said in, there in 1 Corinthians 6 that he who sins in this way is actually sinning against his own body. There's a different kind of gravity to sexual sin. And so... You know, my heart for the church is for there to be a sexual purity inside of it. And the church in Pergamum, they had really allowed themselves to enter into sexual immorality. And it had so destroyed them. It had so corrupted them. And it had so kept them back from God's best for their lives. And I'd encourage you, and no matter who you are, no matter where you are, I'd encourage you personally in your life, be a consecrated person. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, he said, This is the will of God for you, that you would abstain from sexual immorality. Be a consecrated person. Trust the Lord. Receive his provision. Now let the sex that's found inside of marriage be your only recourse and your great joy. He goes on in verse 15 in this letter from Jesus, and he says, Jesus writes and says, So also... You have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we saw this in the church in Ephesus, that they had rejected the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
It is, of course, some strand of false teaching and false doctrine. We don't know what it was. Perhaps it was a domination of the laity. Perhaps it was some kind of sexual immorality. And he says, but you've received that as well. And so you're seeing why Jesus said, I'm here as the one with the sharp two-edged sword. You need to get right by receiving the true teaching and the true word of God. It's so sad to me that when Christians underestimate the value of being part of a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. It's of extreme importance. Therefore, verse 16, repent. Five of the seven churches received this admonition to repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, I will give him a white stone and with a new name written on the stone so that no one knows except the one who receives it. And so here, in a spiritual sense, he talks about the hidden manna, I think God's nourishment. You know, if you receive this, you'll be nourished by my word. He talks about giving them a white stone, which in those days were used Uh, as tickets or signs of friendship or trophies or invitations. And so I think he says, I'm going to give you my approval and I'm going to give you my friendship. And then he says, name, a name on that stone, which no one knows except the one who receives it. The identity that these people would receive from God had they continued in the study of his word. Now, verse 18, we have the letter of Jesus to the church in Thyatira. Thyatira was... Uh, the least important of all of these cities. Uh, There's actually a little quote from the man named Pliny the Elder, who in one of his writings said, Thyatira and other unimportant cities. It was a very commercial city. It had uh, trade guilds uh, were a plenty in that city, more trade guilds or unions per capita there. They were were labored hard. Uh, They Each one of these unions had a patron deity to worship and to party in front of and before. And so, you know, they would, each worker had a difficult decision to make. Will I honor these false gods? And in that city, it was difficult to earn a living unless you were a part of these unions. And so you can sense the difficulty that the Christians in these cities would experience in really being set apart. So, He says to them, he says to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And this was important because what Jesus is saying here is church in Thyatira, don't think for a moment that I don't see what you're doing. Don't think for a moment that I don't see the sin that's in your midst. And that might be an elementary kind of principle, you know, that God sees our sin and, you know, that he sees all things and that you can't keep a secret from God. But it's an intensely practical lesson as well. And Jesus says that. I'm the perfect judge. I've got feet like burnished bronze and I've got eyes like a flame of fire. I see everything that you're doing. And if they could really truly internalize that, It would turn them around. Again, his description is his prescription. And then he begins to commend them in verse 19, a brief commendation. He says, I know your works, your love, your faith, 
and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. They had some great qualities in their church. They had love, they had faith, they had service, they had patient endurance. And he says, and your latter works are more than the first, exceed the first. They were growing as a church, but that's all they get for commendation. They had a major issue in their church when Jesus says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, verse 21, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike, verse 23, her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So, a real mouthful there, but what we have is this uh, teaching or this woman named Jezebel who had been embraced and accepted in large portions of the church in Thyatira. And so the big question, of course, is who is this character Jezebel? Who is she? Of course, in the Old Testament, there is a character named Jezebel. And she does a very similar thing to the people of Israel as this Jezebel had done to the church in Thyatira. Jezebel was the princess of the Syrophoenicians. Her father was the king there. And uh, to make a peace treaty with his neighbors, the king of Israel named Omri uh, arranged a marriage between his son Ahab and this woman named Jezebel, this princess named Jezebel. It was a way for them to establish peace with one another. The Phoenicians worshipped Baal. And Jezebel was devoted in her worship to Baal. When she became queen in Israel, her main objective and goal was to increase and introduce in a prominent way the worship of Baal to Israel and to decrease and eradicate eventually the worship of Yahweh. And she did it, man. She did it. She and her, you know, spineless husband Ahab uh, introduced the worship of Baal into the nation. And it was in that context, of course, that Elijah and Elisha came and conducted their ministries. She's a horrible woman historically for God's people. And she loved to get them into idolatry and into of course, then, sexual immorality, that's the way that you worshipped Baal, was through sexual immorality. And so there's a woman named Jezebel in the church that was leading the church in Thyatira astray. Now, here's the question. Is this an actual, real woman that was found in that church? And the answer is perhaps. Uh, there are actually some who think that this was Lydia, Mentioned in Acts 16, verse 14 and 15. There are some who believe that this was a, an actual Jewish female oracle. Some who believe that this was the pastor's wife herself leading the church astray. 
Uh, we don't know. I take this more likely than not to be symbolic. Uh, Jesus has already been using the Old Testament as an example when he talked to the church in Pergamum about the teaching of Balaam and uh, who taught Balak. So I believe that, that this is more than likely a, an Old Testament example of, of what was happening in the, these New Testament times. I, for one, I just can't imagine anybody being named Jezebel after that Old Testament account, but I suppose anything is possible. So this uh, woman uh, in this sin, and basically what is she doing? She's leading the people of God again into sexual immorality. And, and Jesus promises, verse 22, he says, listen, you know, I had given her time to repent. She didn't. And so I'm going to throw her and her followers into a sickbed. This is often the, the consequence of sexual sin. And he says, you know, because these people are guilty of adultery. Those who commit adultery with her all throw into, the great, into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. They will literally suffer intensely. I'm not sure that he's talking about the great tribulation, but great tribulation. They will suffer intensely, the NIV says, as a result of this adultery. They were unfaithful to God. And that really is what sexual sin for a Christian is. It is unfaithfulness to God. It is crying out and saying, I am not happy with your provision for my life. I'm going to take of the forbidden fruit myself. I'm going to be my own Lord. I'm going to be my own king. I'm going to be my own God. And so Jesus says, I will deal with that sexual sin and immorality swiftly. Then he goes on in verse 24, and he says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. There was a portion of the church, they didn't want to have to, anything to do with the deep things of Satan, quote unquote. Uh, they didn't want to have to, anything to do with all of that, they were separate. They were consecrated. They were set apart from Jezebel and her ways. And Jesus says, I've got nothing else to burden you with. Only, verse 25, hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. There's a day where we will rule and reign with Christ. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. And he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Jesus, of course, himself is the bright morning star. We discover in Revelation 22, verse 16, so these people would rule with Jesus and they would receive Jesus himself. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And it is so important for the church to be a pure church, especially when it comes to the way that we treat these bodies and our sexual activity. And so if you're in ministry, be pure and preach that purity. It is the will of God for us, our sanctification, that we would abstain from sexual immorality. See the intensity in Christ in dealing with the church in Pergamum and Thyatira. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, 
please visit us at nateholdridge.com.